This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, as you know, the Harris Centre and the Community Foundation have released the latest Vital Signs report. But unlike previous years, instead of breaking down demographics and things like health care, food availability, the economy, and a variety of aspects affecting our daily lives, this year it's focused entirely on climate and climate change. Our guests today are Dr. Rob Greenwood, director of the Harris Centre. Hello. Hi, Linda. Great to be here. Thanks for coming on. And Manager of Public Policy and Communications with the Harris Centre, Kathy Newhook. Hello, Kathy. Hi there. So we've been doing this for the last few years, but this year is different. And I guess, Rob, we'll start with you. Why did we decide to focus solely on climate and climate change this time around? Well, we built Vital Signs this year uh, on a project the Harris Centre has been doing for uh, about 18 months now called Forecast NL, about climate, economy, and society in Newfoundland and Labrador. So while the uh, the vital signs is, is uh, the lens is definitely climate change, it's very much about how climate change is affecting our economy, our society, and a lot of the issues we normally raise in, in vital signs, but through that climate lens. And it, largely because, you know, as the pandemic was, before it had broken out, there was a whole lot of, uh, and there continues to be, a concern about the global climate. There were a lot of climate marches at the time. And we knew that in Newfoundland and Labrador, with our reliance for revenues on oil and gas in particular, uh, getting off greenhouse gas emissions was a critical priority. And yet, how we achieve that and maintain the level of social supports the other aspects of our economic opportunities really required what the Harris Center does, which is all about bringing together the expertise and resources of the university in partnership with people in the community, in industry, in government, so that you can have a, a respectful conversation that isn't just from a single perspective that can cut across those various perspectives on climate, economy, and society, and it just seemed like a natural for this Vital Signs and partnering with the Community Foundation to have that focus. And it, I must say, we've had a great response. And it's part of the political conversation uh, lately as well with this uh, push to develop hydrogen and wind turbines on the uh, southwest coast. It, it, was, it, was there any political influence there or, or, or input? No, uh, there's never any political influence with the Harris Centre. We've been around 18 years now, and our brand is all about independence and integrity. Uh, We did get support for the Forecast NL project uh, from the province initially, largely because they really liked the fact that we had an independent steering committee that had representation of climate experts like Joel Finnis, but also people who knew about social impacts of climate change in Labrador, like uh, Ashley Consolo from Memorial. Uh, We had Elizabeth Beal, who uh, has served on the Harris Centre Advisory Board, now an associate who's involved with the Eco-Fiscal Commission, looking at carbon taxes nationally. But then people like Max Rulock, who played a role with the Canada Newfoundland Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board, 
Paul Mills, who used to be the head of ACOA, uh, Barb Neese, who has studied a lot of the issues around the fishery and social change in the province. So we were able to assemble the type of team that can provide a lens on what are the issues, what are the opportunities. And as you probably know, we also have put together a what we call the Citizens Forum, which had representation from across the province, uh, different uh, age cohorts, different education levels, every region of the province. We had all five Indigenous groups represented, and they committed to participate throughout the process to give their views on what were they hearing from the experts, and then how did that relate to their lives in their regions. So uh, I think that's the real value we bring is our independence. And I want to break some of uh, these findings down and the data down a little bit when we come back after the break. Our guest today on on Target, Dr. Rob Greenwood, Director of the Harris Centre and Manager of Public Policy and Communications with the Harris Centre. Kathy Newhook will be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. We're talking about the Vital Signs Report, which was released earlier this week and focused almost entirely on climate and climate change. And our guest today, of course, the director of the Harris Centre, Dr. Rob Greenwood, and manager of public policy and communications with the Harris Centre, Kathy Newhook. And Kathy, I noticed that some of this information was touched on in last year's Vital Signs. Um, temperature changes was one of the, the main ones and, and, and its impact in particular on northern Labrador. What, what's the latest data showing? Uh, well, that's a really interesting one, and I, and you're right. We did uh, feature that um, that particular bit of data last year as well, um, and I think we've also had it in previous years. And I guess it's really just one of those important ones to nail home. Um, the biggest takeaway from the from the seasonal temperature changes is that we're going to see um, temperature changes that really impact what our winters look like. And, uh, and you know, St. John's, we have, we all know we have a particular uh, winter that is uh, a, a lot wet uh, and kind of unpredictable. Um, but in other places like Cornerbrook and, and Labrador, they have a much more stable uh, ice and snow. And, and that's something that's going to shift uh, in the coming years. And, uh, and so, you know, the key kind of takeaway from the, the seasonal temperatures bit is that uh, places like Cornerbrook is going to look a little bit more, feel a little bit more like St. John's when it comes to the winters. And then places like Nain are going to feel a lot more like Cornerbrook. Um, and uh, when you kind of think about it in that perspective, it really shifts um, how people uh, interact and with the, the weather and how they are able to kind of get out and about, especially when it comes to Labrador. And so looking at those little that chart with, um, you know, the images of the island portion and, and the Labrador portion of the province and seeing all that red, especially when it comes to the winter changes in Labrador, um, you know, looking at temperature changes of, you know, 12, 12 degrees in the wintertime um, uh, in some parts of Labrador is just, it's, it's astronomical. It is astronomical and, and affects people's lives in a very profound way. When you're talking about the integrity of the ice, which requires a certain um, temperature to be safe <laughs> and for you to work on, uh, that's enormous. 
Yeah, it's one of the things that's really hit home throughout this whole Forecast NL project. And one of the things we wanted people to really see in the Vital Signs report as well is that impact in Labrador is so key. And I think, um, you know, for lots of folks who, you know, get out on their on their snowmobiles and that sort of thing for leisure in the wintertime, you know, we can kind of appreciate not being able to get out as often. But when it comes to Labrador, you know, that the ability to get out and on the ice and use snowmobiles as a as a form of transportation is you know well beyond leisure it's uh, it's really an integral part of how you live and get around and see family and friends and it can mean the difference between you know having a, a couple of months where you can go visit a neighborhood a neighboring community and get out on the land and uh you know and hunt and fill your freezer with the things that you need to fill your freezer with in order to provide for your family or and you you know cramming that into you know six weeks or or a couple of months or you know having you know six months is what they're used to uh but six weeks uh of of solid ice is not is not conducive for for what they're for what they need to be able to do in labrador really getting getting out and uh and moving around right and these predicted changes are within many of our lifetime Absolutely. It's funny when you think about, um, you know, it's, sometimes you see this written as, and, and we've used some of the language there, like the late, it's late century, you know, late century seems like so far away. Um, but when you, when you look at the numbers, it's like, that's, that's really not that far. You know, it's, uh, you're looking at 2041 to, to 2070 and, um, and th- that mid-century period uh, is really just around the corner, um, and certainly within my lifetime. And uh, and you know, you think about how people in Labrador, in particular, are passing on traditions to their to their children. They're looking at a very different future for what they're going to be able to do um, if those if those temperature shifts continue the way they're going. And precipitation. I mean, you don't live in Newfoundland and Labrador and not be expecting rain or snow, depending on the season. Um, but your, your uh, the data is showing more precipitation and not perhaps necessarily in big downpours, but over extended periods of time. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, wetter, warmer, and more unpredictable is the way of the future. Um, and... Uh, I know it looks a lot like not only are we going to get more rain, but that more rain in that in those smaller chunks of time, which, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of that in the past couple of years, even just that shift from, uh, you know, heavy downpours over three or four days or two or three days can really impact infrastructure in a different way than just consistent rain drizzle and fog that we're used to. Um, if you look at uh, some of the things even that we've seen, uh, you can see you know there's a huge impact on people's houses, on uh, the way that towns and cities are built and, and able to kind of accommodate some of that, that water off uh, the you know water runoff, um, and it's also going to make a big difference to uh, to even things like agriculture and being able to uh, you know keep nutrients in the soil and it's and you know the impacts on soil and uh, coastal erosion and all of those things. So uh, I'm no expert when it comes to all of those impacts. I just uh, when you hear it laid out um, by experts like Joel Finnis and and Joe Dario here at the Memorial, um, it really just 
kind of overwhelms in a lot of ways um, the amount of uh, the amount of challenges that we're going to see when it comes to those shifts in, in like I said, temperature, but also precipitation. Um, and uh, and then, you know, that's to say nothing about uh, coastal erosion and, and storm surges and all of those other things. Yes, and we've already seen some of that playing out in recent years, and it feels I've lost track of time since COVID. I'm sure everybody else has too, but I believe it was last year, wasn't it? Last year or the year before when uh, all of that rain fell on the southwest coast, and it was day after day after day of fairly significant rainfall, and it was coming down from the Lewis Hills, and guess who got nailed? Portabasque. And uh, we've already so we've already seen that kind of thing, and with our topography and everything, else it has far-reaching impacts yeah and uh, unfortunately it looks like we're going to see more and more of that so i mean a key to all of this is being able to prepare and being able to uh, look at what are some of the what are some of the risks to infrastructure within our communities Um, you know what are the bridges that are at risk of washing out and uh, and making sure that we really have a solid plan for um, for making some of those changes sooner rather than later um, you know, the, it's we talk about global warming and climate change, and it always seems so far in the future. But really, we're seeing it so we're seeing it already. We're seeing it now, um, and so we're almost a little bit behind. Uh, we're a lot behind, according to some, uh, in terms of the changes that we should have already been making. But uh, certainly, we can catch up. And I want to talk about some more of the data that's collected here. But Rob, uh, obviously, as as Kathy just pointed out, uh, you know, a lot of what you're seeing here requires policy changes. It does, and that really is one of the key points we we try to flag in the Vital Signs Report. Uh, There's a lot of issues there that involve individuals and individuals' choices uh, around what you buy, what you eat, what you recycle, what you drive, and all those have impacts on climate change and and how we adapt to it and how we mitigate it. But many of them are are collective choices, and, and that involves the role of governments at all levels, federal, provincial, municipal, indigenous, and uh, the report highlights, you know, as we've done a lot of work at the Harris Center over the years, the uh, strength of local government in Newfoundland Labrador, there's lots of amazing volunteers doing their best, but they often have very few staff or no staff in many small communities. And so building the governance capacity to do the planning and the preparation, because all too often, of course, with, with these types of events, you have to react, and you never know sometimes where exactly the worst is going to be. Uh, but as we look at the, the future trends around storm surge and extreme weather events and rainfall, we know that the type of municipal infrastructure, provincial infrastructure, needs to be planned in ways that are different than what we did in the past. Uh, the way we design our communities need to be done different than we did in the past. You know, allowing for uh, wetlands and green space and uh, how close we build to the sea and the type of breakwaters, et cetera. We, just last weekend with the storm surge down in Southern Avalon, uh, significant impact. So these are issues that are not beyond our control. These are things that governments and citizens can think about as we look at the types of trends laid out very clearly. We have the facts on most of the issues, impacts that we're already dealing with and where they're headed. 
Uh, we just need to roll up our sleeves now and implement some of the changes to the way we plan so that we're better prepared. Our guest today on On Target, Dr. Rob Greenwood, Director of the Harris Centre and Manager of Public Policy and Communications with the Harris Centre, Kathy Newhook. We're talking about the latest Vital Signs Report, which is focused entirely on climate and uh, climate change. We'll be back right after this. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather and more during your VOCM Morning Show. And we're back. We're talking about Vital Signs. Our guests today are Dr. Rob Greenwood, Director of the Harris Center and manager of public policy and communications with the Harris Center, Kathy Newhook. And Kathy, I know one of the things that a lot of people glommed onto when they first saw it was this this uh, change in frost-free days. And uh, the forecasts are saying that the number of days in which Newfoundland and Labrador is going to experience frost or cold weather is going to go down over the next little while. Um, a lot of people say, "Hey, that's great." <laughs> um, what it's not that great yeah it's uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword right it's uh, we all like to be able to enjoy a few extra uh warm days in the spring and the fall um but it is a it's a bit of a price to pay i think uh but the changes will be coming more for the spring and the fall and i think we can safely say we've seen a little bit of that happening already um you know our growing season is getting a little bit longer uh, which again is is actually you know some some decent news um, when you look at it uh, when it comes to being able to grow your own grow our own food and increase food production here in the province. But um, but like I said, it does kind of open up to a whole other area of you know it, it makes the environment more conducive for pests and invasive species and um, and that's something that you know a lot of um, a lot of the things that we have and we grow here are are avoiding those those certain pests that are and uh, and things that happen elsewhere like um you know I'm thinking of you know blueberries and and those uh sorts of plants that that have other um pests in different parts of the country but here they're they're best kind and uh you know but that's just a little example and there's going to be a lot more of that as well so it's kind of you know we, we like to be a little bit excited about the idea of being able to grow for longer but it's certainly not something to uh to you know jump around in the streets about because uh, we're we're still going to have to be mindful of some of those other things and uh but if there is a bright side, that might be one of them. <laughs> yeah, because as it gets warmer, uh, certain species are going to go, hmm, this is finally yeah, exactly. finally the place I get to propagate again. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, we're just not, I mean, we're already seeing that kind of thing, aren't we, with with ticks and other things that are slow, have slowly made their way across uh, the province um, yeah. in yeah. places where we've never seen them before. Yeah, absolutely. And that warming, too, I mean, in the ocean as well. I mean, we're talking about um, air temperatures, but um, but the water temperatures as well. We, uh, we're we seeing a lot of that warming happening there, and it's, it's wreaking havoc, really, on the ecosystem and in the ocean, maybe even more, more particularly, because it's it's so uh, sensitive and so susceptible. And, uh, and we rely so heavily on the ocean as well for uh, the fishery and, and the kind of health of that is... Um, like I said, it's it's very much a, a trickle down effect. If you get a, a, a shift of a, a couple of degrees, um, it makes a huge difference. 
Yeah, and it, and like you say, it's very complex because not only you're talking about warmer temperatures, but you're also talking about more ice melt, and you're talking about less salinity and the impacts on currents and all of that. Because of that, it, it just changes absolutely everything. Yeah, it really does, and it's something that uh, you know for for us, we wanted to take a look at that piece. Um, but not just from the you know health of the oceans and the ecosystem, but then also look at you know what is that going to mean for our fishery here? You know what is that going to mean for how uh, fish harvesters are preparing for for those changes? And uh, I know one of the sessions we had during the Forecast NL initiative, uh, we had a great panel discussion. We had um, someone from the FFAW and from DFO, um, and a couple of people from the university as well, from the Marine Institute. And uh, what really hit home for me in that session was just the fact that the only thing we can really do is prepare for change. Now, we're not exactly sure what that change is going to be, but, you know, changing um, different species are going to be becoming more uh, available. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, so that the ability to be able to kind of shift what it is that we fish and how we fish, and that's going to have a huge impact on the regular fish harvester and the equipment that he or she has and the licenses and all of those sorts of things. So there's a, there's a, a big trickle down um, when it comes to all these climate uh, things and, and looking at the environment piece is one thing that's really important, but then um, equally important is to really think hard about how that's going to affect um, individuals in the province. And uh, I think sometimes we can think of that as a little bit more removed. Um, but once we start to think about, oh, you know what, that's really going to change how you know so-and-so, my neighbor, is uh, going to have to equip his fishing boat and whether or not he's going to be able to afford to do that and uh, and those sorts of things. And when we talk about climate change, I mean, the history of the earth tells us that climate has always been changing, but it's these greenhouse gas emissions that human activity is creating that's accelerating that at a pace that is really you know, happening before our very eyes. And um, Rob, one of the things that uh, you mentioned in here in the in this uh, report, greenhouse gas on greenhouse gas emissions, we've heard a lot about uh, carbon footprint, but now we're talking about the carbon shadow and how big it is. What is a carbon shadow? Yeah, it's a really neat concept that a, a climate journalist came up with, uh, Emma Pate, and uh, it it highlights for individuals. Uh, you know, we all need to think about our direct impacts on climate change through the things we uh, we eat and we throw away and we drive, but also that all those things have indirect connections, and it's a little bit like the kind of supply chain of climate impact. And so, uh, you know, we hear a lot about moving to electric cars. We know to get off GHG emissions, greenhouse gas, it's essential to find uh, sources of, of power other than hydrocarbons. But there are impacts when you go to, uh, to uh, new vehicles with uh, technology. There's uh, minerals that have to be mined and disposed of. And so it doesn't mean you don't do that, but it means you need to be very deliberate about the choices you're making. And we really are, you know, some, I remember a, a cliche years ago that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out, of, it didn't end because we ran out of stone. Uh, we, we came up with new technologies and, and new things to use, like metals. Well, we're moving into multiple potential new sources of energy. And the, uh, the Vital Signs report 
mentions, you know, the, the move to electric, the potential of hydrogen, the opportunity for critical minerals in Newfoundland and Labrador, which are used in those batteries and, and uh, uh, new technologies. But we need to be very deliberate in terms of understanding which of them have what impacts on climate change and which of them, because when we look at many of these competing options with wind power and the like, it all requires the ability of our, our, our grid to be able to transmit electricity. Some of the benefit of hydrogen is it can in go by ship. So I think that the shadow point is that it's the indirect as well as the direct that we need to be aware of. Well, indeed, because if everybody shifted to um, electric cars tomorrow, uh, there has to be a policy or planning in place to decide what to do with all of those batteries when they're no longer useful. That, that's exactly right. And, and so part of this, and there, there's a point made near the end of the Vital Science Report about this, we've always had a, a kind of perspective on the economy of about extracting resources and producing products from them and then disposing of them. And it's kind of a linear conception of the economy. And for Canada as a whole and for Newfoundland and Labrador, we always kind of thought of ourselves as hewers of wood and drawers of water. Uh, we all were settled here by Europeans, uh, the indigenous peoples here long before. But the attraction largely for the colonization was natural resources. It was the fish initially off Newfoundland and then furs and then agricultural products and forest products, and minerals, and then oil and gas. And from an extraction economy perspective, it, that's where you get your wealth. But we're more and more realizing that if we're going to have a sustainable economy and society, we can't just think of it as linear. We have to think of it more circular, in fact, where the way you get the products and services you need can utilize recycled products, can repurpose products, and yes, there's absolutely going to need to continue to be, and we see much more demand for mineral products and mining, but we can't enter into those mining developments without also being very conscious of what type of production are they going into and what will be the waste and recycling impacts. And it's more of a, an ecosystem, holistic approach. And you just stole the word right out of my mouth. I was going to say we need a more holistic approach, something that is going to incorporate all of these things so that we're not just uh, dealing with another problem somewhere down the road. That's exactly right. And, and we see the exact same thing happening there's a load of work at Memorial now, uh, working with partners in Indigenous communities, in the fishery, in agriculture, on uh, how we take waste products and from the fishery, for example, all the parts of the fish that we don't use, the shells from shellfish, etc., and how they can be used as further value-added goods or as inputs into agriculture. And uh, there's a big project led out of our Grenfell campus on that. We have people in engineering and at the Marine Institute. There's a center at the Marine Institute that specializes in this. So, you know, a lot of the climate change discussion can sometimes seem uh, a little scary. 
And indeed, when we see some of those extreme weather events, events, no doubt about it. But this is also creating lots of opportunities as, you know, the tech sector, clean tech. You look at companies like Misa in St. John's with their smart thermostats are helping address reduction in energy demand while maintaining comfortable homes. And it's a massive market. So there's real opportunities there. The the demand for critical minerals in our mining sector, the opportunities to apply new technologies and approaches to fishery and forestry and agriculture. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of positive, innovative, new opportunity work around this as well. Our guests today on On Target are Dr. Rob Greenwood, Director of the Harris Center and Manager of Public Policy and Communications with the Harris Center. Kathy Newhook, we're talking about vital signs. We'll be back right after this. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Vital signs is the topic today, and the focus is on climate. Our guest today on On Target, Dr. Rob Greenwood, Director of the Harris Center and Manager of Public Policy and Communications with the Harris Center, Kathy Newhook. And, of course, um, energy is a big part of this whole equation, and a lot of our energy of course now coming from hydro development or we hope so anyway if you know what I mean because the LIL is not fully uh, online yet but um, I don't know about you guys but normally uh, you know we have a lot of heat on in the winter and then we take a little break in the summer but this past summer and the summer before I had that air conditioner going which is unusual in Newfoundland and Labrador so uh, what are our energy needs going to be like going forward Uh, Kathy um, well, I mean, all predictions seem to be that the energy demand is going to continue to go up. Um, you know, like you said, for air conditioning is one piece, but also as we shift over to electric vehicles um, as well. And so it kind of seems a little bit like um, uh, like a contradiction because, you know, on the one hand, it's conserve, conserve energy and messages around conservation. And on the other hand, it's switched to electric. And um, and so it's, uh, I think, a complicated puzzle for some for some folks when you're hearing it in bits and pieces like that. But um, we're really lucky in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, you know, 96% of our energy comes from hydro. Um, and that, I mean, across the country, we were sitting, we're sitting right at the top in terms of uh, in terms of you know green energy and uh, so we're very lucky in that way um of course you know the trick for us is really still um looking to conserve energy because you know our our energy grid our electric grid is still um you know only has a certain amount of capacity and so uh, i guess the trouble for us is to make sure that we don't overload the the grid at any given point and so still being mindful of uh of your energy use and your electricity use. Um, but certainly, you know, there's so many options uh, or so many advantages we have here in this province when it comes to green energy sources, you know, and so we have uh, lots and lots of hydro um, and uh, hopefully when Muskrat Falls is able to call them fully online, uh, uh, that will be uh, excellent for the province as well then to be able to kind of t- come off of um, fossil fuel at least for the main part of the grid. Um, but there's still issues uh, with some remote communities as well still being on diesel if they're not connected to the uh, to the full 
to the full main grid, um, they're reliant on local power. And uh, in a lot of cases, the cheapest way to provide local power is through diesel energy. And of course, that still burns fossil fuels. So um, a lot of the attention right now is focused on trying to find what are some green options for those small communities. Um, and, you know, luckily we're at a place where, again, people are looking at what are some options for communities to really own that energy as well. Um, and because of the increase in electricity and our position as, uh, as having a really green grid, um, you know, if they're able to kind of, uh, sell any of that extra stuff back, um, but also be able to uh, provide clean energy to their communities. So they're looking at wind and small hydro uh, projects, but sometimes the overhead for building those projects are still a little bit uh, too costly. And so um, we need to get to a place where that, that infrastructure is costing less than the uh, yield diesel, which uh, is still the cheapest way for many of those communities. Um, but certainly there's so much opportunity. Uh, and like I said, that's not even to mention anything about wind. Uh, and we have lots of that here. And on the, the topic of wind, because it has been a, a big topic of late, th- there's still a lot of questions surrounding it, though. There really is. Um, you know, energy and electricity is uh, is one of those really complicated areas. Uh, you know, it makes sense on the surface level to say, well, we have lots of wind. Why don't we just use wind? Um, and, you know, but really it has, it has so much to do with the infrastructure of the grid. And it's kind of... Uh, um, a little bit beyond my knowledge base uh, to get into all the details, but I know we had a session with um, with Hydro um, to answer some of those questions because our citizen forum as part of the forecast initiative really did have a lot of those basic questions to say like, well, what is it? How come we can't have more wind power? How come we can't sell back to the grid? Uh, you know, why are we uh, doing all these other things? And uh, and you know, and so there is a lot of a lot of questions there. But I think the great thing is the conversation is now shifting when it comes to wind, and uh, and we're able to look at some of those ways that we can generate wind power and uh, and kind of add to the the hydroelectricity within the main grid, but also really provide to those remote smaller communities. And then if we get to a place where we can we have excess electrical capacity, we can always um, look to try and find other markets for that. And that's uh, and that could be a real way for the future in terms of the province. Um, but I know anyone who deals in that wind sphere is also talking about um, is also talking about hydrogen. And uh, and again, that's uh, that's another great opportunity and and a bit of a puzzle uh, for those working in that sphere. Uh, you can have um, you can create hydrogen, you know, from from lots of different things, hydro electricity, but also wind electricity. And so um, that's one of the main opportunities is looking at, uh, you know, how can we create, how can we build, how can we build, um, you know, an industry, a hydrogen industry and be able to kind of ship that energy. So getting that energy and that electricity to places that need it is the biggest piece uh, when it comes to kind of capitalizing on our tons of wind and our tons of hydroelectricity. Um, but um, hydrogen may be um, an option for that as well.
Rob, we've been talking a lot about the uh, the data and the concepts in, in Vital Signs. And for a lot of people, I think, you know, especially when you're talking about change over time or uh, areas that are going to be impacted with, let's say, coastal erosion and that, it's still kind of conceptual for a lot of people. But you narrowed down some of these um, impacts in a very interesting way. And one of them is um, looking specifically at healthcare centers at risk of flooding. Where did that come from and what did you find? Well, that was from a, a national study looking at the susceptibility of healthcare to uh, facilities to flooding, and it's an issue really with urban design. And uh, we had, uh, as we've mentioned, Joel Finnis on our steering committee. We had sessions that included people from uh, industry and municipal. I know municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, has a lot of interest in this area. The new federal adaptation plan, uh, I think, it put $500 million into the Federation of Canadian Municipalities precisely on some of these issues. So we are, in terms of the healthcare facilities in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we're a little more susceptible than the national average. And that's a product of a lot of urban development, taking away wetlands putting rivers underground and not really anybody to blame in this regard. Years and years, decades and decades of weather patterns that we had the odd big storm. But when we look at the impacts of climate change now and some of what we discussed at the beginning of the, the, the discussion today, the really heavy rains that we're getting over multiple days more frequently in the run of a year our municipal infrastructure isn't designed for that. And so every level of government, uh, but it happens at the municipal level, but you have provincial facilities, you have federal facilities, all have to take this into account now going forward and really change the way that we think about our cities and towns. And again, one of the big challenges of Finland Labrador is an absence of planning capability in most regions. And so it's great that the provincial government is uh, moving forward with uh, regional governance effort, and we're waiting to see what the next step on that is. But it's very clear that the vast majority of Newfoundland and Labrador municipalities don't have the capacity to plan around that type of infrastructure development and the impact of those uh, extreme weather events. We have uh, about um, just under four minutes left, three minutes left. I'll give uh, uh, you both an opportunity to uh, give us your final thoughts. Kathy? Um, well, I'm, I mean, we're really happy that uh, we're able to get this publication out. I think um, one of the things that came up time and time again throughout the Forecast NL initiative was uh, – that you know, there really isn't a, a lot of awareness and understanding about what the issues are locally uh, when it comes to climate change. I think we're getting there, and the conversation's been really shifting. Unfortunately, um, after things like the you know the fires in Central this past summer and uh, and Hurricane Fiona, and of course in the ice conversations we've been having uh, with folks in Labrador. Um, I think seeing those instances of really that shift in climate having such harsh impacts 
here um, has enabled people to kind of check in a little bit more to the conversation. Um, but we're, I'm really pleased that we were able to get this out and get it into the hands of folks to um, to kind of satisfy that next level of information to understand what are some of the other impacts and how can we really um, adapt and uh, and prepare as we're going forward. And Rob, uh, less than two minutes left. Well, for us, you know, all these issues are, are with us now. There's lots of great evidence, data available to inform decision-making. But as we know, in, in the whole range of things, uh, impacts on the fishery, agriculture, forestry, impacts of storm surges, etc., we need to continue to invest in science, including social science. Uh, I'm kind of biased on this front, but obviously the university has a key role to play and we're delighted to be able to put out vital signs in partnership with the Community Foundation to highlight a lot of the work that's happening at the university, but in partnership with industry, with community, with government. It's really key, though, not to just have the science and the data. Obviously, we have to be able to apply it. And so the processes to inform public policy and practice are essential. That really is a key role of the Harris Center. We're there to be a convener, mobilizer, to help bring together the players, because often these do require trade-offs. They do require decisions. We can't be in our silos and stick to our own preferred way of thinking and come up with the solutions that are going to require trade-offs across society. So a lot of this comes back to governance, and, you know, a good old-fashioned word is how people govern themselves in a place, and we need to do a lot more attention to that on climate change and every other topic. And of course, uh, the Harris Center always, always does a brilliant job of taking a lot of information and pre uh, presenting it in a digestible form. Where can people get their hands on vital signs? Kathy? Oh, yeah, you can find it on the Harris Center website um, at uh, www.mun.ca slash Harris Center. Uh, and you, uh, it should be right there on the top of the page. Um, and uh, you can look at this year's vital signs, but also past years. And there's lots of information there for, from Forecast NL as well. And our YouTube and channel has all of the past panel presentations. And our partnership with Saltwire, it goes out with the the Telegram this weekend and in community newspapers. And I think it goes out with the flyers where they go to people's homes. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on with me. It's always an interesting conversation. Dr. Rob Greenwood and Kathy Newhook of the Harris Center, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Our Thanks, pleasure. Sir. Thank you. And we'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. And do take care. And thanks for listening.